0: There is a technique that is called karma yoga. That is the yoga that works with your karma. That is, it works with the stuff of your life. If you're washing dishes, the washing of the dish becomes your practice to get liberated.
1: Welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. I'm Jackie Dabrinska, the Director of Education, Inclusion and Community for Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. You all are the Ramdas community. And we have another great episode for you today. It's a two-parter from a lecture that happened in the 1990s. And in this first part, Ramdas talks about the nature of the spiritual journey. And formulas for liberation. And he's specifically digging into the devotional aspect of karma yoga. And many of you probably know karma yoga is the yoga of action. So this one really is directed towards us householders, those of us living in this day to day world of family and work and all the rest of it. And hopefully it's going to give us some great tips for keeping our heart from getting dry. But I will let Ramdas tell you the rest. But some of you might be missing Raghu's introductions, and I want you to know that you can still catch them in a more interactive way. Every week after an episode of Here and Now airs, we have a fellowship community call. And in it, we dialogue and have some Q&R with Raghu, and then we go into breakout rooms to discuss the podcast and our curiosities and our inspirations with each other so we can really learn from each other and deepen into this practice of satsang. So if you're interested in joining the next one, and everyone's welcome, whether this is your first podcast of Here and Now, first episode of Here and Now, or if it's your 200th, please come. Uh, it's August 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can find out more by signing up at ramdas.org slash fellowship. And this is the 207th episode of Here and Now, which is pretty amazing. It's the sixth year anniversary of the Be Here Now Network. And it happens because we have this amazing dedicated staff that works tirelessly to bring us 20 fresh and free mindfulness and spirituality podcasts. So if you want to make sure that this continues to happen now and into the future, consider making a donation during this anniversary fundraiser. And the really cool thing is when you do, you'll be entered for some pretty cool prizes, including the potential to go to the sold-out Maui retreat in December. So find out more at com slash fundraiser. And lastly... If you want to know more about connecting to teachers and gurus after their passing, um, really, I encourage you to pre-order "Whisper in the Heart," which is a new book by Parvati Marcus, and it's documenting <laughs> and it's documenting lively accounts of folks who have connected to Neem Karoli Baba after he died in 1973. And it's stories like this, like these, stories like these that really remind us that there is so much more going on than we can possibly imagine and it lets us know that we can continue to connect to Ramdas and Maharaji in many unexpected and very real ways so make sure you go and check that out at ramdas.org/shop so with that let's jump into our time with Ramdas but first please take one more minute to listen to a word from our sponsors
0: Yesterday, we built a context for spiritual practice. We talked about kind of a metaphysical base. We talked about what awakening is about and what it is you realize. Because um, to embark on the spiritual journey in a life is really, as as I mentioned yesterday, it's a shift of... Um, ground and figure what was figure becomes ground what was ground becomes figure and a spiritual life is one where you see the meaning of your birth your incarnation your work on on earth as having to do with your awakening it isn't having to do primarily with security with with a pleasure with the things that you generally, most people think life is about. It, that's what usually is figure. But what many people have found that have been very, uh, that have received the benefit of the American dream, they've gotten what they wanted. They have security, They have uh, uh, they have health. Um, they have opportunities for travel and for enrichment. And when they try to measure their happiness in terms of things or experiences, there is always a, a kind of a slightly hungry ghost quality. They're always reaching for another one. There's always another one. It's always more and more and more and more. And there is anxiety as one approaches death. Because it means it's going to be the end of it, and it's really uh, it's philosophical materialism—not in the gross sense, but it's it's the philosophical uh, aspect of that. Now, um, when Christ says, "Let let those that let that which is worldly be for the worldly, let the dead bury their dead," meaning um, let the worldliness be what it is but don't get lost in it. Uh, Remember, remember what you've taken birth for. Now that remembering only happens when you've awakened, otherwise it doesn't really happen. Otherwise you fit your spiritual practices in a little bit and it gives you a little peace of mind and it's sort of insurance against going to hell or something, but it doesn't doesn't do the transformation that is potentially available in a human incarnation. And when you look at people cross-sectionally, just the population, you will see that you have really like a normal curve uh, in terms of the level of evolution of individuals. Some people are, are, from a reincarnational point of view, newly taken birth and they are very, very preoccupied with survival, that's their business. And there are some that are at the other end of the continuum that are very, very old and wise beings that take birth primarily to bless being, bless us. They have very little work left to do. And in between are the rest of us who are more or less deep in the illusion of our separateness, as we said yesterday. Now. And it's it's. It's so interesting that there's a whole body of literature, there is a whole reality that is available to the eyes that are looking for them because of something that's happened inside of you. Prior to the time when something happened inside of me, all of those books, like the Gita or the Tibetan Book of the Dead or uh, the Essene Gospels or... I mean, I can do it in every religious tradition, or the Tao, De Ching, or things like that. They all seemed like irrelevancies. They seemed like um, uh, weird books for weird people. <laughs> and uh, uh, something happens inside of me, the perceptual apparatus changes, and suddenly those very books become the maps, and the keys, and the codes that I'm looking for to help me understand what's happening. And they are also reinforcing the fact that uh, what's going on in me is not happening to me alone and that I'm not completely insane. And uh, that's a shift that goes on in an individual. And you can't force that shift in people. I mean, there are people that somebody brings to one of these lectures and at the end they come and say, that was very nice, I didn't understand it, but it was very nice. And it's sort of fine, lovely. Something happened, but who knows what. And you learn, after many years of trying, that you cannot rip the skin off a snake prematurely. It has to shed it, and it sheds it when it's ready. And that you can't awaken people. People awaken when they are ready. And when they are ready, then what awakens them, as we saw yesterday when we took a sampling can be any number of things. It can be a leaf falling, it can be uh, you know being under the stars, it can be having a baby, it can be having an automobile accident, it can be any number of things. Once you've started the journey, however, it is, um, it becomes more and more compelling. Now, what looks like a critical point when you started the journey and before that you hadn't, is obviously fraudulent. There's not, it's not a critical point. It looks critical because it was a moment when you noticed a change, but actually all the build up all to the moment when that happened. I mean, there like I took psychedelics in the '60s and that opened me, but other people took psychedelic in the '60s and it didn't open them that way, and it had to do with the fact that I was ripe for that. And that ripeness had to do with everything that happened in my life and many lives, probably. So there is a moment when that starts that seems to be a moment, but it's actually a continuous process. And from then on, the journey is fascinating because you begin to appreciate the fact that you are on a journey that the... Meaning of life is a vehicle through which you can further awaken. As you study more deeply, you understand the nature of life experiences and the role of suffering, as we talked about yesterday. And you come to appreciate the way in which the end of suffering has to do, the end of your suffering has to do with the nature of your spiritual evolution or the clinging of your own mind. And these are the four noble truths that the Buddha enunciated after getting enlightened, which he said there is suffering and the cause of suffering is the way the mind clings. And when the mind doesn't cling, then one doesn't suffer. And it's very clear. I mean, you can see it in any example of suffering that the mind, the the expectations, the models, the interpretations, the way the mind grabs has to do with the nature of the experience that we call suffering. So finally, you are, you see your predicament, you see your suffering, you see there is a possibility that there is an end to suffering, and you come to understand there are practices you can do to move you from suffering to an end of suffering. And you also realize, as I said, that you can't lay the trip on other people because you are very upset by their suffering, but you can't take away another person's suffering. You can merely create an environment where they can let go of their suffering if they want to. And that's part of the moral responsibility to another human being. Now, with that context in mind, then you as you see your predicament, you see how trapped you are in your own thought forms, and I'm sure in the process of meditation this morning you got a little sampling of that. You begin to see how much your heart has been closed down by the, the need to defend in a world of suffering when there was nothing you could do about it, and the feeling of sometimes guardedness or you feel the way in which you have reinforced your own separateness from the totalness of the universe because part of awakening as we said yesterday is the appreciation of the unity of all things. You may also see the way your energy is bound, blocked, not freely expressing. itself. It's as if you have been over socialized and you can't quite break out of it. So you start to look around at practices. Now, <clears throat> when you look at practices, there are a variety of kinds of practices you look at. There are, as we said yesterday, practices of the mind. There are practices in which you pit the mind against the mind, like the Zen Koan. Study. Study using different contextual frames of reference to re-see your predicament. That's all using books in that way. That's all the use of the mind. These are all paths up a mountain. When you get to the top of the mountain, you're at the top of the mountain. How you came up is how you came up. Different strokes for different folks. It has to do with your unique karmic predicament as to which route up the mountain is for you. If you're a heart person, you're going to be drawn to devotional practices if you're a heady type, you're going to be drawn to the mind-type techniques. If you're a uh, sensual person, you're probably going to be drawn to uh, tantra and sense devices and mechanisms. If you're, um, and then we'll get on to uh, karma yoga in a second. If you're um, uh, working with, you, if you're very active, you're going to probably be working with energy techniques. Because these are all techniques. You can start to uh, purify your diet, simplify your diet. There are certain very rigorous rules of diet that um, you would use in hatha yoga. You can do the diet along with breathing techniques, pranayama. You do a, a... form of a very fast breathing and then hold the breath and then move the awareness down to the bottom of the spine and tap and raise this incredible energy, which is called the kundalini. And uh, those of you that had it know about it, and the rest of you wouldn't believe it anyway. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, and that energy will take you through shifts in reality as you go and it will take you uh, out and out and out. It takes tremendous discipline to practice a thing like that. You can use um, the devotional practices of loving Christ or loving uh, a guru or loving <clears throat> uh, God and just feel the devotional quality of the relationship and just keep opening your heart towards the one in whatever form you take to your deeper self keep opening and loving and singing and and poetry and you feel that thing happening through the heart. There is a technique that is called karma yoga. That is the yoga that works with your karma, that is, it works with the stuff of your life. If you're washing dishes, the washing of the dish becomes your practice to get liberated. Now take something as simple as washing a dish. You've got dishes piled in the sink. And you're gonna scrape the dishes and then you're gonna run the water and you're gonna put the soap in and then you're gonna soap the dish and then you're gonna wash the dish and you're gonna put it in the rack unless you have a dishwasher. Then you can't use this yoga. <laughs> But you must remember a time when you didn't have a dishwasher. I'm an old-fashioned fellow. Now, can the act of washing that dish be a spiritual act? Or do I have to wash the dishes so I can get done, so I can meditate? Is your life experience, are your life experiences an interference with your spiritual practice? Or are they the essence of it itself? A woman comes up and she said, I would love to do spiritual practices, but I've got two young children. But I've got two young children. How about, I'm doing spiritual practices because I have two young children. Karma yoga is taking the givens of life It's a great story that um, Stephen Levine often tells about Paul Reps, who wrote Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and other books. And Paul, uh, right after the, um, uh, when the, during the, um, when MacArthur was occupying Japan, he wanted to go to Japan and they weren't letting people, he went to the Japanese legation and um, they were turning down applications. And he wrote on his application, making a cup of tea, I end the war. And he handed it in. And the embassy official said, these are the kind of people we need in Japan. Welcome. It's like in the, just the act of making a cup of tea, I make it with so much peace. The quality of the way I make it brings into the universe those qualities that we need. I often speak at peace rallies and it's extraordinary for me to watch somebody saying, we've got to have peace. And I end up agitated and irritated and angry at all the people that aren't helping us have peace. Mahatma Gandhi, I love the image, he was on the train leaving the station and people rushed up and said, Mahatmaji, give us a message to take back to our people. And he wrote on a paper bag and handed it out and it said, my life is my message. The way in which you drive your car, the way in which you walk down the street, the way in which you look at people, the way in which you do that. All of that impacts the universe around you. We are all interdependent. We are all interdependent. So your act affects others. But now the question we're asking is, is the act an act you can use for your own spiritual transformation? Once you have the metaphysical foundation so you know what you're doing. You recast the meaning of your life. For example, my talking to you. Now, I'm doing a number of things simultaneously. One, I am earning a living. This is my job. Hi, what do you do? Well, I'm in the workshop game. That's my business. It's also a chance to share Dharma with fellow beings. It is also an exercise for me to work on myself. Can I use this situation for me to get enlightened? Somebody comes up and says, Ramdas, you've changed my life. Thank you. Now, what happens to me when that's said? well, thank you, I really needed to hear that. (laughs) Or, don't be silly. Or, thank you. I am using everything around me as my vehicle to get liberated. All of it. Mahatma Gandhi worked in a village and the people said, thank you for what you've done for us. He said, I didn't do it for you, I did it for myself. When you understand the predicament we are all in, that we are all caught, and that because we are caught, we are perpetuating suffering with each other, even as we attempt to help each other out of suffering. Like I can give somebody that's hungry food in a way that I'm so busy being me giving the food that I end up making that person be the person that got the food, which disempowers them. It does a whole trip to them just in my giving them the food. I'm not. I'm like Typhoid Mary. I'm not only giving them the food, I'm giving them with it a lot of poison. I'm giving them the root of suffering is what I'm giving them. I'm giving them the food in a way to keep myself distant from them, which increases their isolation and alienation, just in the way I did the one act of giving them food. Once you're aware of the predicament that the suffering we are all experiencing is due to the clinging of mind You say, well, let's get rid of the way we cling in our minds. And where will I start? I'll start with me. I will work on myself as my act to help relieve the suffering of all beings. The predicament is you can't wait till you're enlightened to help other people. Sorry, can't help you. (laughs) I'm not ready yet. I might hurt you. It is true. You might hurt another person. You will but all you can offer is what you got because you got to keep doing it because we all need each other and you got to keep doing it. So you bring whatever truth you've got to bear into the situation. Now the elegance of karma yoga is the very act you do to help another person is simultaneously the act you're doing to work on yourself. Like, I am helping you now at some level. But this act is my work on myself. Because the clearer I get, the better my help is for you. So I'm serving you as an act to work on myself. I am working on myself as an act to better serve you. Can you see how the circle works? Can you see the elegance of that? Now, once you decide that you would like to start to use your acts as a vehicle for liberation, there are formulas of how to do that. And a lot of them you won't like. Because you're so used to milking your experiences for rushes, to put it in street jargon, or let's put it another way. um, Looking to your life experiences for pleasure. But now let's turn it around. Let's say I'm going to use the acts in order to awaken. The formula is, first of all, I must quiet down and listen to hear my Dharma. I must hear which act is appropriate for me to perform at this moment. Like at this moment, lecturing is appropriate for me to do. There are moments if your child is hungry, you prepare food, that is appropriate. If there's nothing in the refrigerator, you go out and you get a job, it's appropriate. If somebody calls and needs help, you respond. It's appropriate. If you will listen quietly, you will hear what your dharma is. Now, we in our society have a complicated situation because we don't have as many external matrices in which to understand our dharma as other cultures often have. Traditional cultures have very fixed matrices. So you'll know if I'm this age and from this background, I will do thus and so. That's my Dharma. Like in India, there are four stages of life. You're in the student stage up to 20. You're in the householder stage from 20 to 40 when you make as much money as you can. From 40 to 60, you start to do spiritual practices and study. From 60 on, you're a sannyas. You give up all forms. So you say, well, I'm 42, means I should be studying and letting go of my job, turning it over to my kids. You went into your, now, that's one of the matrices in India. Another one is the caste system, which once it became an economic world, that became unjust. But in the old days, it was, and where people believed in reincarnation, if you were the son of a shoemaker, you became a shoemaker. And if you were a dharmic shoemaker, if you did your shoemaking perfectly, that was what was going to liberate you, not to wish you were a king instead of a shoemaker. So the shoemakers were impeccable shoemakers and the kings were impeccable kings. And people just wanted to do their dharma. They didn't want to do somebody else's dharma. When you're in a culture where everybody wants to be president, God forbid, even one is too many. But if you're in a culture like that, where it's all up for grabs, where you can do anything you want to do, it's really hard to hear what your part is. But if you listen, you hear, what are your skills? What are your opportunities? What is your education level? What is your economic opportunities? What does the situation allow you to do? From within that, what feels right? I'm constantly listening again, listening again and tuning. Because at each stage of life, there's a different role to play and a different part to be in. So the first thing is you hear your dharma. And that changes from moment to moment. So you've got to keep listening. And the quieter your mind is, the more you will hear. You will hear your part to play. Now the next part is the way in which you do the act. And here there are two rules. One is... Where is your awareness in relation to the, to the act? Are you the actor? Now, consider the fact that you may, many of you drove here today and many of you drive automobiles. Think about when you're driving, how much time you spend thinking about driving. Well, let's put it the other way, how little time you spend thinking about driving. How much time you're thinking about other things, you're planning, you're listening to the radio, you're talking to somebody, you're watching for the police, whatever you're doing. (laughs) But you are making incredibly complex decisions about centrifugal and centripetal forces, about acceleration and deceleration. If you were to put the decisions you were making on a blackboard, in mathematical terms they would blow your mind, and you're doing it. And you're not even thinking about it. It's all going on what you call base brain. In other words, at that moment, you are not identified with being the actor. You're in the car and you're, but you're not the driver. I mean, you are the driver, but you're not busy driving. Don't talk to me, I'm driving. And actually more accidents happen from people who are busy driving than people who are not busy driving, turns out. So we're talking about the... That's probably not a true statement, what I just said. I just thought of all the drunks and all that stuff, so strike that. I mean, What I really mean is when you begin to learn how to drive, you are very nervous and you tend to do all kinds of wrong decisions because you're overly busy driving. But the art form is to not identify with being the actor, which means to draw your awareness back from the action back into Ram or wherever. So I'm sitting here. Here's an example. I was, um, a, the chairmanship of SAVA Foundation is a rotating chairmanship. And it's a, it's an organization that uh, a group of us started in 1979 to help relieve suffering in the world. And uh, one of the things we're doing is building a hospital. We do a lot of blindness surgery in, in, the, in Nepal, and in India. And at one point, I was in Nepal as chairman of the board. And I was meeting with a... Um, a minister to the king. And I wanted them to relax certain bureaucratic things and they wanted money. So we met each of us with our agenda and I was chairman of the board and my counterpart was minister. And the minister had his entourage and I had my entourage and we were having tea. And I had my blue blazer on and my striped tie And I was Dr. (laughs) Doss. And I had my wish list and I had the people back home who had sent me out there saying, you damn well better get all that. And he had his wish list. And I was a rich foundation from America in his mind. Little did he know, but at any rate, we were about to start the bargaining. I was nervous. Because after all, there were people back home that were watching what I was doing. I didn't want to blow it, I I wanted to be tough. And I was sizing him up, drinking my tea. And I looked into his eyes, and there he was, I mean, behind all of his funny hat and all his stuff and all, there he was, are you in there? Thought you were a minister. I and mean, he was just another being, just like me, looking out at me. He wasn't caught in his this the way I was caught in my chairman of the boardness. I was busy being the actor. He wasn't. He was just at rest, because he came out of a whole culture in which he understands all this. So he was just sitting there, and he brought me up for air. He gave me a contact. Hi, he freed me, and we looked at each other, and the delight that spread through us was incredible, because at that moment, the whole game of the bargaining between us turned into a monopoly game. See, Minister of Health was the top hat, Chairman of the Board was the iron. All right, I'll trade you B and O for Marvin Gardens. And the more we bargained from that place, the closer we became. So instead of the bargaining dividing us, the bargaining unified us because we met in the place behind it because we were not identified with being the actors, although we were acting. See, a lot of people are offended by the term life is a game or a play or a dance or lila or whatever those words are. But yet, when there is a place where you go into quietness behind it all, you experience the delight of the forms changing, including you and your part in it all. And when you are quiet enough, you start to fulfill your dharma impeccably. Because what distorts your effectiveness in fulfilling an act is the attachments you have that distort the way you see it. If you're too identified with your desire systems, then what it does is it colors the universe so you see only that which will gratify that desire. If I'm hungry, what I see is that which is edible. And if you're not edible, you're of no interest to me whatsoever. If I need power, I see you in relationship to whether I'm going to get power or not. I may have desires, but where is my awareness in relation to those desires? If you understand, the job is to extricate your awareness from attachment to thoughts, sensations, all of it. It goes on. The body is going. My heart is beating. My intestines are intestining or whatever they're doing, digesting. My blood is circulating. The whole process is going on. My personality is being neurotic. All of it's happening. I don't have to do it all day long. Before I cultivated any center, my personality was absolutely real for me. I've said many times, years ago when I was a therapist, I really thought I was a therapist. Because I really thought I was a therapist, the person in the room with me had to be the patient. If there was two of us and I was the therapist, you must be the patient. (laughs) And I needed that person to need me in order for me to be adequate as a therapist. And I am horrified to look in, in retrospect that I would actually punish my patients for getting better. Because I really needed them to be sick. I needed them to be... Sick but getting better, but I didn't need them to get better because then they didn't need me anymore. Now I'm in a room where, with another being, and then we, we hear, we look at on the, on the table what's the stuff on the table? What's our business together? What have we got? The first rule then is hearing your dharma. The second rule is extricating yourself from identification with being the actor. Now that's the one people don't want to give up because they want the rush of being the actor. Because as you quiet down, you realize you're sitting in a place where as the the Japanese poet Hakuin says, your coming and going is nowhere but where you are. You're right here. Like I'm here in Houston, tomorrow I will be here in San Francisco. I'll still be here. I didn't go anywhere. There was movement, planes flew, bodies moved. But from my point of view, I'm right here. I'm just here. It's interesting because I travel a lot and it's amazing how people use think about travel. They say, oh, I've got to travel today. You'd think they were going to fly. All you are is you move this box from here and put it in another box and then this box moves to that place and all of this and your awareness stays right here all the time. And if your awareness is here, at the end of the day, you aren't any tireder than you were at the beginning of the day because you didn't do anything. No, I'm going to travel. I'm going to San Francisco. Really? Wow. I just came from Europe. Oh. You know, I mean, it's, it's a far out. I mean, it's like, well, you get it. <laughs> it's amazing how we identify so much and then we get exhausted. And the thing that exhausted us is our minds. Because you say, oh, I'm so tired. But then somebody calls you that you love and you forget all about, it. oh, let's go out. Oh, yeah. I thought you were tired. Well. And you see that your fatigue often has to do, it's not really, really, really n- fatigue in the muscular sense. It's psychological fatigue because you were so busy doing stuff all day. Can you imagine finding a place inside yourself where there's nothing to do? The profound statement, one does nothing and nothing is left undone. Yeah. amazing and it's it is not only possible but it is the stuff of which liberation is made to find a way to rest in the spacious awareness that surrounds all acts that infuses all acts without getting caught in the act itself so there is talking to you now and i'm just sitting here and what you are focusing on, if you're busy listening, then you see me as talking. If you're sitting behind your listening, just you here, I'm here. And then there is talking and there is listening. But there is nobody talking and there's nobody listening. And at that point, it's talking to itself. And nothing's really happened. And for me, most of the time, nothing has happened. And you say, poor you. Must be boring. See, that's what I'm saying. You don't want to give up the rushes. What are you going to do today? Today I've got the most exciting thing. You know what I'm going to do? I watch which things catch me, which things pull me, which things get me frightened, which things get me enticed, which things awaken my interests or my desire systems, where I lose my awareness into the drama of it all. A karma yogi is using the acts to come back always to the place behind the act. So you're using your situation to watch, to see with your witness that we talked about yesterday, to watch and see the way in which you are getting lost again into the drama. I used to have trouble, as I've said before, in the last uh, administration with the Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger. Um, I just had a difficult time with his personality, with his values, with his way of leading the defense of this country. And I would get very frustrated about him and so I decided I had to work with that. So I took a picture of Casper Weinberger, and I have a puja table, which has Buddha and Christ and Mary and Anandamai, and I put Casper there in the middle of it. <laughs> See, and every morning I'd come in and I'd light my incense and I'd do my all my prayers and I'd say, Good morning, Maharaji, good morning, Buddha. Christ. I love you, Christ. And hello, Casper. and I would hear in that tone of voice how far I yet had to go (laughs) that I was so attached to these judgments and these things and I was working with that in order to get to the point that I could just see behind the veil I could see Casper's got his stuff to work with just like I got my stuff to work with but when I identify with with my stuff we both get into trouble The next component is the identification with the goal. If I am doing my dharma, if I am lecturing to you, I'm doing it as well as I'm able to do it under these conditions at this moment. I'm doing my dharma as impeccably as I can and the quieter my mind, the better I do it. What it does to you is what it does to you. If I am so attached to what it does to you, that will affect the way I do the act. If I am so anxious that you might end up not loving me, or not getting enough, or not something, it will start a whole cycle of anticipatory something and I'll start to have anxiety and it'll start to affect my action. So the way a karma yogic act is done is you do it because it is the appropriate dharmic act. You do it as impeccably as you can. You stay centered so you don't get lost in being the actor and you are not attached to the fruits of the action because you're doing it as well as you can and what will happen will happen because Every act you perform, there are so many more variables that are determining how it comes out than what you can do, what you have control over. I mean, many of us have had the experience where where we act with with an intention of going somewhere to a goal, and something comes along and interferes with it, and we get really wiped out because we didn't get to the goal. So what I'm talking about is where the process of life, when you're doing a dharmic act, the process of life becomes the focus rather than the product of life. See, whether you get something from what I am saying, you individually, has to do with so much in you that I have no control over. Maybe you ate a bad piece of cheese last night. Maybe I look like your father-in-law. I mean, there could be a thousand things going on. Maybe you think I'm the Messiah. That's all your problem. I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm doing it as a dharmic act, but what happens is what happens. And the equanimity comes because you are doing, like those of you that have raised children must have noticed that no matter how well you do it, kids turn out the way kids turn out. You can't create a a product, you can only create an environment through which a process happens. So you're cultivating a spacious awareness. You use meditation to do that. Mantra, mala, whatever you use to keep coming back to a center. You use that center to watch the unfolding of the laws of the universe, which include your own acts and your own thoughts. See, you are part of a lawful, all form is part of law. Not human-made law, but the law, the way of things, the Tao. How you're sitting, what you're wearing, how you're looking, what concepts you're using, all of that, if you knew enough, if you could stand back far enough and could see all the variables involved, you could predict that at this moment you will go like this. And you thought you chose to do it. We are, all form is within law. And your thoughts are forms. And therefore, they're not happening in a vacuum, and they're not happening in a free system. They're not free. It's all within the law. So what's free in you? What's free is awareness. It has no form. It's totally free. So you are free. Who you think you are isn't. Peculiar situation, isn't it? Once you understand that and you understand that an awakening and enlightenment is becoming free, you realize you have to extricate yourself from being attached to your forms. It doesn't mean destroy your forms. That's not going to help. You just have another form. It means be in form but not be in form at the same moment. It means how you are in form. It means that I am... This is a body that in a week will be 60 years old. It's decaying in a perfectly normal fashion. There are these veins now and these lines there are these wonderful aging marks. Look at that, a nice decaying 60 year old hand. Okay. My hand or the decaying 60 year old hand.
1: Okay.
0: How interesting, it's the law. Look at the law. Look at it manifesting. And when you start to watch your own mind, like what you're doing in meditation, if you keep watching, you will begin to see the whole pattern of your mind, and you'll see how lawful even your thought forms are, which is the reality you think you're living in all the time. And you slowly keep drawing yourself back and back until you're just resting in the the presence of it all. And it's all unfolding, you're acting, you're driving, you're traveling, you're talking, you're doing it all, and nothing's happening. And people say, I don't know what it is about you, but I like to be around you, you seem so peaceful to me. Well, sure I'm peaceful, I'm not doing anything. (laughs) People say, you seem to be so busy all the time, I don't know how you do it and stay so calm. It's because I don't do anything. But so much is happening. It's none of my business. I'm just here. I am probably doing four times as many things as I could do when I thought I was doing something. I mean, just much more is happening in my life now, and much less is happening inside me. And I do it, and how it comes out is how it comes out. Like at this moment, I've started a, uh, a course, a 10-week course that I've started in Oakland, California, last Wednesday night. It's got 900 students in it, and it's a PBS television series. It's being videotaped, and it's very expensive to do this thing. And I've had to raise a lot of money to make this happen, because if you don't raise the money, then the, the networks tell you how to do it. And if you want to really share Dharma truthfully, sometimes you've got to protect it by raising the money. So I've raised enough money to get through half of the shows now, six of the ten. People say, well, what happens if you run out? Well, that'll be interesting, won't it? (laughs) Well, aren't you concerned? No. I'm doing what I can do, and it will be what it will be. It'll either do it or it won't do it. If it doesn't, see what I found out is that when things didn't work, it turned out life was more interesting or at least as interesting as when it did. People come to me and they say, "Ramdas, do you think I should get married or not? And I say, it doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? Matters to me. Well, that's your problem. I mean, even my choices don't matter to me. Why should your choices matter to me? (laughs) Because it's going to be interesting either way. If you get married, you'll be neurotic one way. If you don't get married, you'll be neurotic another way. (laughs) There'll be joys and pleasures either way. You'd have a, this is the only way. I don't have an only way. I'm listening from moment to moment. Everybody's a growing organism going through thousands of experiences. In Marin, we have a drought. So you use less water. Okay, we use less water. Then it rains like hell. Okay, now we have more water. Change of behavior. Ah, so. Ah, so. Ah, so. Life keeps changing, changing. The art of karma yoga is taking the actions you do every day, listening to hear that they are the actions that are most harmonious with the total gestalt you find yourself in, as a citizen, as a family member, as part of an ecosystem, as part, just keep listening into it all. Then you do what you do, keep centering so that you don't get lost in the doing of it. How it comes out is how it comes out. You did it as impeccably as you could with a goal in mind, but not attached to whether the goal is realized. So you end up being absolutely at peace all the time. You end up having extricated yourself from the drama of incarnation. You end up being an instrument in the world through which comes peace presence. You are part of the source out of which comes all form. So you are meeting everything as part of yourself. So that our relationship becomes an internal matter. Because I don't see you as them You're us. You're not only us, you're I. One more little component. Whoops. We'll take lots of questions this afternoon, so don't worry. Feel frustrated. There is a devotional component. That is available in Karma Yoga. That is absolutely brilliant. And take the store, Take Mother Teresa for example. Mother Teresa works with, say, the lepers in the streets of Calcutta. She meets leper, a leper lying in the gutter, lying in its own in his own urine or vomit, and its being has got parts of their body eaten away. And she is so tender in the way she washes and ministers to this being. And if you look at that from outside, you say, isn't she good? But if you look at it from inside Mother Teresa, it's a whole other ballgame. She's not being good. When you say to her, what are you doing? What she's experiencing is she is ministering to her beloved Christ in one of his more distressing disguises. Now, if you are in love with somebody and they're sick and you're taking care of them, are you being good? Isn't that something you would rather be doing than anything else? It's not that you're being good, it's that you want to do it. It's the, to be with your beloved through whatever form is wonderful. So the devotional component in karma yoga is that the serving or the relationship with other people, who is it you're relating to? My wife, my husband, my son, my daughter, my uncle, my aunt, my employer, my employee, my local law officer, my judge, my supermarket checkout person. Try shifting the perceptual apparatus just a little bit. Just turn the channel one notch. And realize you're meeting all of these beings, just other beings just like you, who just have different forms They're in. You're wearing yellow, you're wearing aqua, you're wearing white, you're wearing purple, you're wearing green. You're not green, you're wearing green. You're not blue, you're wearing blue. I'm not striped, I'm wearing stripes. The checkout person isn't a checkout person, it's a being who happens to be checking out your groceries. If you see them as a checkout person, then you're the purchaser. Is that what you wanna be? Wouldn't you like to just be a being, meeting another being? Hi, you in there, far out, what do we do? Well, I'll check out your groceries, okay. I'll be the buyer, you be the checkout person. What do you say? Huh? Kids like to, well, who are we? Kids like to play like that. See, what I do is I keep meeting people and I keep listening to hear who they think they are. If you're busy being somebody, you can't hear who other people think they are because you're too busy trying to make them be who you need them to be to be who you think you are. That was very wise. You may have missed it, but (laughs) that was really very wise. Count on me. That's true. Want me to say it again? (laughs) I listen to hear who other people think they are. I wouldn't be able to hear that if I was busy thinking I was somebody because if I need to be somebody, then I need you to reinforce who I think I am. So I'm only using you to be who I think I am. If I'm nobody, then I'm just listening. I'm just a big ear listening to hear who you are. And I can hear who you think you are. Like each person comes up to me as a walking projection system. See, they think, each person comes up and thinks Ramdas is somebody else. It's just like the blind men and the elephant. You know, all the blind men go to visit the elephant, and one touches the side, and one touches the tusk, and one touches the leg. And then later at lunch, they're having a discussion. Somebody says, well, an elephant is very like a tree. And the other said, you're off your your wall. An elephant's like a wall. And the other said, no, it's like a snake. And they get into a tremendous fight. Each touched a different part of the elephant. When you are busy being somebody, you only see other people in terms of what you need to reinforce the model you have about reality. If you don't have a model, then you can hear who they are. The quietness of mind allows you to hear the universe. So I'm standing here. I am nobody. I don't know who I am. I mean, if you say I'm Ramdas, I'll be Ramdas. I'm a renter Ramdas. I'm standing here. And you come up and you say, You've meant so much to me. Well, I hear, You've meant so much to me. So I become somebody to whom you've meant much. Somebody else says, You're a big disappointment. <laughs> Now I run all it through to see what I got to work with, but generally most of it I've cleaned up most of it and I'm really, when you say you're wonderful or when you say you're horrible, I realize that's your mind. That's not me. I'm not busy being horrible or wonderful. I'm not important and I'm not irrelevant. I'm not rich and I'm not poor. I'm not old and I'm not young. I'm not beautiful and I'm not ugly. I'm not any polarity. I'm all of it. I'm just here. I'm not coming and I'm not going. To carry an identity around is so heavy all the time. I'm responsible. And you better damn well acknowledge that I'm responsible. People walk down the street, I'm responsible. And you know, they look responsible. You ever see people how responsible they look? And they talk to their secretaries responsibly, and they do everything responsibly. I'm sure they make love responsibly. And then there are other people that are kind of laid back, you know, and everything they do is laid back, and yeah, right, and they're busy being somebody laid back. Why do you have to be somebody at all? That's so funny. Well, I mean, nobody will know me. See? And you begin to see the fun of having a relationship with another human being where nobody's anybody. And everybody keeps changing all the time. We keep punishing each other if we're not who we expected we would be from yesterday because it's not convenient. Gandhi had that beautiful story where Gandhi was leading a march and then he stopped it because I guess he saw there'd be violence or something and his lieutenant said, Mahatmaji, you said we'd have a march and you're stopping it today and people have left their jobs. You can't do that. Gandhi said, I'm a human. God is absolute truth. I only see relative truth. My understanding of truth changes from day to day. My commitment must be to truth, not to consistency. I'm sorry. Think of how much of your life is made is your commitment to consistency, not to truth. How much you're being who you think you ought to be, even though it isn't the truth of your being. And think of how scary it is to think living with another human being in truth. Because it's living, it's a living thing. Truth is a living thing. Habit is not. (laughs) And most institutions are calcified truth. They started that way, and then everybody got afraid to rock the boat. So you be the one that puts out the garbage. I'm the one that cooks the lasagna, right? We got it, right? <laughs> and the horror, I mean, like with Seva, we've been successful. We've done well. We're a good foundation. The horror of success, that's really creepy. Can't do it that way. It doesn't, you know, might, you know. Better we should fail. Be more interesting. So there is a devotional quality in karma yoga because you're looking at all of it, and uh, for me, it's all my beloved. You are all my beloved. That's it. You are the all the faces of my guru. You are the lover. You are it. You are what it is. Each person I'm with, here we are. This is it. I'm not doing this for later. Later, we'll have it's later. Out of this, there will come some revenue, and that revenue will pay some taxes or pay for gasoline or pay for something But this isn't for that, although that's all part of it. This is for this. This is enough. This is what it's about. This moment in your life is what everything in your life up to now was about. And if this isn't it, you're screwed. (laughs) This is what you got. If you're collecting this so later it'll be enough, forget it. Because this is the sample. That's why... You prepare for your death in the morning because so you need not die at night because when you have done the work of being in this moment now, then when the time comes for you to die, you'll be in this moment then because the best preparation for then is what you're doing this minute. And so you live this minute fully with all of it present, death, life, suffering, joy, all of it. It's all right here now. All of it is fully present at this moment. There is a child starving to death, this second, from malnutrition that is the result of the disequilibrium of economics of which you and I are part. That's true, this second, and now another one just died, this second. And 40,000 of them will die today. Can you be joyful in the presence of that? Think of all the babies that are born. Think of all the beauty that's happening. Think of all the roses that are flowering. Think of the sun and the warmth and the beauty. Can you be sad in the presence of that? Do you have compartments in your mind, now I'm sad, now I'm happy? I want to be happy, but I don't want to think about that because it'll make me sad. How about the place quiet inside where you can look at it all and say, yes, awesome. Uh, There is suffering. There is joy. My dharma is to do this. I am doing it. I am at peace with the universe. It is what it is. It includes horror and beauty, and it's all unfolding, and I am part of it. I am part of it like the winds and the mountains and the rivers. I am part of it. And I'm at peace in it. And then the actions... And every action that catches you is another thing to awaken, to see how it caught you, and to bring you back into your center. Then you're a karma yogi. Then you're a karma yogi. And when a karma yogi, a real yogi, meets another yogi, it's only itself meeting itself through all the different forms of the dance, of the dialogue between two parts of itself.